Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The third of my Emancipation Ghost stories takes place in Frankfurt. I hope you enjoy it. Coming from the east, from Berlin, Frankfurt rears up out of nowhere. The railway line twists through forest-crowned hills, and then suddenly, bang, a high-rise skyline, Oz on the mine. Nowhere in Germany do you feel the total erasure of the past as you do in Frankfurt. That's intentional. Eighty percent of the city was destroyed in the war. No firestorm, as in Hamburg or Dresden, just the steady pounding of Allied air raids and then the assault by the American army on what was then, and still is, the financial capital of Germany. But where other German cities tried to return to the low-rise shape of the pre-war landscape during their reconstruction, Frankfurt city planners opted for something else. The skyscraper. And unlike Paris and London, its only high-rise rivals in Europe, these enormous buildings were situated in the heart of the city. The problem for me, as a ghost hunter, is it makes it harder to locate where my ethereal trailheads are. I went to the Paulskirche, where the Frankfurt Parliament, the first democratically elected National Assembly in German history, met to write a constitution for what its members hoped would be a unified German state. My ghost, Gabriel Rieser, had played a critical role in that get-together. The Paulskirche is one of the few historic buildings in Frankfurt rebuilt after the war. Rebuilt, but not restored. A great what-if hangs over the place— if only the Frankfurt Parliament's constitution had been accepted by Prussia's King Frederick William IV. The Prussian monarch was invited by the Assembly to become the constitutional ruler of a new nation-state, a united Germany. But the king refused to meet Gabriel Rieser and his fellow deputies when they brought him the fruit of their labors. Kings do not accept their crowns from commoners. The Parliament was dissolved. Germany would be united eventually by blood and iron, and it would be held together by more blood, and more blood, and more blood. I moved on in search of another Frankfurt trailhead, but found it no longer exists. The Judengasse, or Jew's Lane, the street where Europe's ghetto of ghettos once stood. Venice is the city where the word ghetto was coined, but the place in Western Europe where the ghetto experience was purest and lingered longest was the Frankfurt Judengasse, a tiny curved alley just at the city's eastern edge, around 350 yards long, no more than 10 feet across at its widest point, home to 3,000 people who were allowed out to do business by day, but locked in at night and on Sundays. It was so cramped sunlight never reached the street, one of its sons, Ludwig Borna, remembered the place as having a darkness prevailing there that calls to mind the ten plagues of Egypt. That was the case up to the moment Napoleon's Grand Army arrived in 1796 and, during an artillery bombardment, managed to set the Judengasse on fire. Jews were rehoused in temporary quarters while the buildings were repaired, but only a few returned permanently to the Judengasse when the work was done. Among them was the street's most famous resident, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, founder of the great banking house. His descendants would live in palaces, but he never left the alleyway. Anyway, there is nothing left of the Judengasse streetscape, as I found out on my visit, 
Today, there is the inevitable museum built over some archaeological remains that mark the ghetto's site. Otherwise, the modern city bustles by in a great hurry. The Judengasse Museum is on Bornaplatz, named for the writer and journalist Ludwig Borner, to whom you have already been introduced. He was born Lou Baruch on the Judengasse in 1786. He's forgotten now, a ghost, but in his time, Borna blazed the trail for the first Jewish intellectuals emancipated from the ghetto. The first step on the Borna path was education, outside a religious academy. Borna's father, a banker, sent him away from the ghetto constraints of Frankfurt for a secular education, and eventually the young man turned up in Berlin to study medicine. His talents were verbal rather than scientific, however, so he switched to law. By the time he finished his degree, Napoleon had directly, or indirectly, spread Jewish emancipatory statutes all over Europe, and Frankfurt was no longer the horror show of segregation and race laws that it had been when Borna was growing up. He went to work as a legal advisor to the city's police force. That might have been that, but following Napoleon's defeat, Frankfurt's masters took advantage of the change and reinstated the old laws. Jews were banned from the civil service, and Lou Baruch lost his job. All he had to live on was his facility with words, so the young lawyer started to write in the German-speaking world's equivalent of Grub Street. Work in journalism was the next signpost he planted for those following behind. New technology, industrial-scale printing, increasing literacy, and burgeoning nationalism were creating a vast new audience for political opinion. Journals to satisfy that audience were popping up everywhere. It was the blogosphere, with hard copy. Borna started a journal. He had to be careful. Throughout the German-speaking world, censorship was severe, so Ludwig Borna hid his political messages inside theater reviews. He found a distinctive style, ironic, witty, and elusive. German is not a language noted for its expression of any of those qualities. It was easy to write critically about the foibles and prejudices of the ruling elites in the German states under the guise of reviewing productions of historical dramas by Schiller or contemporary drawing-room comedies. He could dismiss a shoddy production as wasting everyone's time and make it at the same time a call to political action when telling his readers not to bother to go to see a play because these are times when constitutions are being written, parliaments being summoned, we all have our hands full. The next signpost on Borna's trail was what to do about religion. He converted to Christianity, for mundane reasons. Perhaps he could get his old job back, but also because it was a way of stating his desire to be known as a German, at a time when there was no Germany yet. His politics were nationalist, and some nationalists theorized it was not possible to be German without being Christian. But the nationalism Borna espoused wasn't the racial kind. It was about unifying the fragmented kingdoms, duchies, and free cities of the German-speaking world into a modern unified state. This was the most important sign he left on the trail for his fellow Jews. Work towards creating a modern German state. Borna had long left Judaism behind, but he understood that there was a link between the status of Jews in the German lands and the creation of a modern united Germany with a proper constitution and bill of rights. Equal rights for all guaranteed justice for the minority. 
Many followed his signposts. Among them was the poet Heinrich Heine, already well known for his verse. Heine became friendly with Borna in the salon of our old ghost Rachel Varnagen Venense. He emulated the older writer in two ways. Heine, also, after a struggle, converted to Christianity, and he began to dash off bits of prose for newspapers. But where Borna wrote theatre criticism, Heine wrote travel pieces, letters from abroad, bits of history and personal anecdote with political messages inside. Heine traveled to England in order to think about Germany. When the fatherland faded from my eyes, I found it again in my heart. On the other side of the water, he was able to see his fellow Germans more clearly. He wrote, The Germans are a speculative race, ideologists, prophets and afterthinkers, dreamers who only live in the past and in the future, and who have no present. He wrote, The Englishman loves liberty the way he loves his lawful wedded wife, as a piece of property. The Frenchman loves liberty the way he loves his brand new bride. He burns for her. He will fight for her to the death. The German, on the other hand, loves liberty as though she were his old grandmother. And he got stuff like that past the censors. Both Heine and Borna studied the new political theories coming from Paris, like the utopian socialism of Count Henri de Saint-Simon. This primitive socialism shaped their vision of a united Germany, freed from the malingering vestiges of feudalism. Emancipation became their byword, and German unification their mission. But not every generation gets to make a revolution. Most Germans in the late 1820s were not prepared to embrace change as the French had been on the eve of their revolution, nor were they going to be chivied into demanding unification and equal rights by men who used language the way Heine and Borna did. They made jokes. There was something alien about wit to the blood-and-soiled German nationalist. Heine and Borna might have been baptized, but their wit gave them away. What German makes a joke, the critics asked. The jokes proved they were still Jewish. Wit became part of the Jewish stereotype, like a big nose and skill in business. Then, by chance, everything changed. In July 1830, France erupted in revolution again. Ludwig Borna raced off to Paris immediately to report on events. Heine, typically, was traveling. By the time news of the revolution reached him, the fighting was over, and a new French constitution was in place. No matter. The poet set off immediately to join Borna in the French capital. Both sent dispatches back to German newspapers on the political changes in France and what they might mean for Germany. Borna's letters, in particular, gained him a wide new readership. In time, his collected Letters from Paris became a classic text of German liberalism. He could write things from Paris, secure in the knowledge that he wouldn't be arrested. He became bolder. He wrote, When I say that all our various German governments have gone crazy, I mean it in the medical sense. What made them crazy, according to Borna, was their obsession with the dark side of the French Revolution, which blinded them to the many good ideas that motivated the event. How sad, for when governments take leave of their senses, it's the sane who get locked up. Over the Rhine, in Germany, Borna and Heine inspired a literary movement among the coming generation of liberal writers. Young Germany echoed the sentiments of Borna and Heine's dispatches from Paris. For those who agreed with them, the two authors were exemplary Germans. Conservative nationalists viciously disagreed. They referred to young Germany as young Israel and constantly reminded their readers of Borna's ancestry. 
It is miraculous, he wrote. I am well aware of the value of my unearned fortune, my being both German and Jew, thus being able to strive for German virtues without having to share any German faults. Borna acknowledged his ghetto birth, shaped his politics. Yes, since I was born a slave, I love freedom more than you do. Yes, since I was not born in a fatherland, I wish for a fatherland more passionately than you do. Neither Borna nor Heine would ever leave Paris. They stayed because both men found that Paris was a place where they could be German. In Germany, they would always be Jews. But as Jewish trailblazers, their lives had profound meaning. They crossed together out of the no-man's land inhabited by the first Jews emancipated from the ghetto and established a place for their community, converts or not, at the high table of European culture. Half a century later, a brilliant young Jewish doctor from Vienna took a fellowship in neurology in Paris. Sigmund Freud did what all intellectuals do on their first trip to the City of Light. He went to the city's great cemeteries to pay homage to his heroes. The graves Freud visited were those of Ludwig Borna and Heinrich Heine, a tribute from the third generation out of the ghetto to the trailblazers of the first. Heine is remembered today. Borna is a ghost. He is a ghost twice over. Jews were the real victims of the Holocaust, but German literature was a metaphorical casualty. In the second half of the 19th century, German was the language to know. Since the war, study of the language has fallen away. Translations of its rich 19th and early 20th century literature are sparse. Borna's work is barely available because of the language he wrote in, as well as the heritage he came from. As a Jew, and as a German, he has been forgotten, except for his name on the intersection built over the remains of the ghetto where he was born. I am certain his ghost appreciates the irony. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.